All right. Well, I am gl- glad to be worshiping with you all this morning, and uh, and actually really hopeful for the outcome of this message. Um, I can tell you truthfully, it's one that I have been, as we thought about 1 Corinthians, kind of worried about giving, um, because I have been concerned that the scriptures not be misused or to give someone an excuse to critically tear down their husband or their wife because this is the person that God has entrusted to you as a gift. So let me just say at the outset, if you are married, watch your elbows. Amen? Uh, And more importantly, uh, watch your heart. If you hear something you agree with this morning, uh, you don't need to store that away for the next time you have a fight about these things. And instead, what you need to be doing is looking for the ways that you need to change so that you can be a more loving, more treasuring, more blessing husband or wife to the person God has given you as a spouse. Because the fact is, it is Jesus who changes our spouses. Amen? I have never yet seen someone who is harshly criticized by their husband or their wife ever have that moment where they go, well, shazam! I didn't realize I was such a horrible sinner. I repent in dust and ashes in the righteousness of your fury and wrath, right? I mean, they just, that just never happens. It's never occurred at my house, I'll assure you, it's not happened at yours either, right? That how we change is through the Holy Spirit's conviction of our own hearts. So again, watch your elbows, uh, be careful. Uh, Actually, before I get into this a little bit, I I don't want to forget to address this. Uh, We are making progress, as Clint said, on our uh, associate pastor search. We have narrowed our focus just a little bit. Uh, because of uh, some of the other blessings that we have had musically in the church of recent. Uh, We are looking more exclusively toward a youth pastor, and we're uh, closing in on that process. So uh, we'll have more to share with you as that that process moves forward. But do be in prayer for us. We have a couple guys we're pursuing very seriously. Um, So just, again, be in prayer on that. Uh, It's exciting. Now... If you are married, you have one of two choices as it comes to sex. This one or this one. And either your sex life will be something which stabs and wounds and cuts and damages the two of you. Or it will be glue that binds the two of you together, that holds you tight to one another, that blesses your life, that helps smooth through some of the rough patches that you go through. You got a choice, which it's going to be. You got a choice. Is this going to be something which brings about the one flesh union that the scripture talks about 
or is this going to be something that is life-taking rather than life-giving? Is this going to be something which injures or something which binds? And you need to be able to make a choice together as a couple. So I'm going to be very careful this morning. I don't want to have to fire myself at the end. Uh, but one of the things that, uh, that God says to us is in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And we're going to, as we're moving through 1 Corinthians here, you know, one of the good things about being an expository preacher where you go through a book at a time and you look at a few verses each time is you can't avoid the sections you don't want to preach on. And so we're going to preach on this one right here. Uh, the first five verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Now, the Corinthian church, as we have seen, had a whole lot of issues. In fact, as we move forward, we're going to see even more issues that they had. And if you look at prior chapters as we've studied through the book, what you see is that this is a church with serious sin issues. Uh, there were factions and fighting. Some of them were also involved in sexual sin of various types and kinds. Uh, there was a man sleeping with his stepmother. There were people who were visiting prostitutes, and no one raised an issue about any of these things. And... Paul, in, in uh, chapter 5 and 6, is correcting them for allowing these kinds of sins to persist. But there's another kind of sin that they maybe you have not thought of, and that is of withholding sex from its appropriate context. And there are some, apparently, in the church who, uh, in the previous chapters, Paul is addressing things that he had just heard about. And now he's gotten a letter from them asking some questions, and he's starting to ask them, he's starting to answer some of those. And one of the questions is, is it okay to have sex or not? As married people. Because there were some people, I think, in the church, as I as I read the letter, what I think is going on is this: is that there are some people who, in reaction to all of this stuff and in reaction to all of their pagan background, are saying, well, you know, sex is just really this unspiritual, ungodly thing, and you should never engage in it, even if you're married. Really. And some people, even today, still have that attitude, that this is something which is uh, purely a procreative thing, and you're not to uh, really engage in it, or if you do, not to enjoy it. By the way, nothing in the Scripture supports that notion. But it's one that a lot of people have. And people have swung, in some cases, completely the other direction. And so they are going around and they're using this slogan that Paul quotes in verse 1. It's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Uh, your translation may read, touch. It's good for a man not to touch a woman. But the clear implication is sexually touch a woman. And Paul is saying, yes, that's true in certain contexts for sure. If you are sexually touching a woman to whom you are not married, men, you're out of line here. If 
Women, if you are sexually touching a man to whom you are not married, that's out of kilter with the Scriptures. So it's good not to do that. It's a good thing. However, within the context of marriage, not a good thing. And Paul is going to affirm celibacy later on in this chapter, that that's a good thing. But it's a good thing if you're single. And you might even choose, as Paul says later in the chapter, to remain single and celibate for the sake of the kingdom of God. And that's a good thing because there's, there's blessing and there's greater opportunities for ministry as a single person. You know, I, I, uh, I've talked to people about that before, and I say, you know, look, as a single guy, you know, you don't need a whole lot of stuff. You know, if you, if you feel called to ministry, let's say, you know, you feel called to go minister among the, the, what's left of the cannibals in Papua New Guinea, you can pack up your backpack, buy a plane ticket, and move there the following day. And you don't have to ask anyone's permission or even consider what anyone else thinks about it, frankly. But now as a married man, I cannot do that. You know why? I have five reasons. Their names are Karen, Sarah, Ashley, John, and Nathan. I have them to consider. I'm not as free as I would be as a single man. But I enjoy my lack of freedom on that. I do. I have great family, and I love the benefit of being a dad and a husband. However, it does limit your options to a degree when you, once you get married. You have other people to consider. So Paul's going to talk about that later. But being married and celibate is not a good thing. It's a damaging thing. And sex is multifaceted. According to the Scriptures, it has a lot of purposes. But the one that Paul highlights here in these two verses is that it's protective against temptation. It has, it has pleasurable purposes, it has unifying purposes, it has procreative purposes, it has comforting purposes, but it also has protective purposes. That you are looking out for the other person. Now, how many of you have ever tried to lose weight? Okay, raise your hand. All right, I'm currently engaged in this, right? Now, if, 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 you are, uh, if you are a good friend to someone who is trying to lose weight, you do not leave an open box of Godiva chocolates on the counter, right? Why not? Because that is putting temptation right in front of this person who has desires that they want to satisfy and can't. Now, please don't misunderstand. If you fall to sexual temptation, you cannot blame your spouse. If you are involved in sin, it is you who is involved in sin. However, your spouse is there partly... Part of the reason that God gives for marriage is to help one another out. To serve as a shield against temptation by engaging in regular lovemaking with you. And this is not the only purpose of sex. Please understand. But, but, but Paul does say that, this, one of the, that one of the purposes of married sex is as protection and care 
for one another. That as one man said, if I have filet mignon at home, it's hard to be tempted by a cheeseburger at McDonald's. Right? That's true. Now, let's move on. Paul also says married sex is sacrificial. It's verse 3 and 4. A husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Now, the point of these two verses is real simple. Within the context of marriage, your sex life is not your own. It's not even, in fact, your own body anymore to exercise authority and control over. It belongs to the other person. Why? Because when you get married, you become one flesh. You become one flesh, and you give yourself over to your spouse. And your body now belongs to them and their body to you. Because of the covenant that you have made. Marriage is a covenant. In our culture, you know, the sign of the covenant is a ring. We give each other rings when we stand before the Lord and we stand before the minister and our assembled friends and family and we exchange a ring. And that is the, that's the sign of the covenant. But the seal of the covenant is what happens that night as the couple pulls into the Sheraton and closes the door. That is the seal of the marriage covenant. And the two become one flesh. And it's sex that does that. That make the two people one flesh. That unites them together. It unites them, by the way, not just bodily. Although that's the obvious part. It's not just a bodily unity. There's a deep emotional and spiritual unity that goes along with it. As anybody who is married and has been with their spouse knows. There's an emotional and a spiritual component to this. And it is a holy moment as two married people come together. And marriage, therefore, implies not just the privilege of sex with one another, although that's the part that a lot of people focus on, It also implies a responsibility. And your spouse, men and women, has a right. Look at the word. The right. Conjugal rights. On both halves of this. By the way, statistically speaking, about 30% of women have higher desires than their husbands. The rest of us men all hate you, by the way. (laughs) right if you're the husband in that situation we want to take you outside and beat you but uh it in about in about 70 percent of marriages it's the husband who has higher desire than his wife but but the point of the text is this whatever the case whatever whichever way that door swings in your marriage you are to love and serve sacrificially one another There's a mutual sacrifice 
And this, by the way, is, I think, where we look to the gospel. If you, um, if you read Ephesians 5, one of the things that jumps out at you, this is another context, but where Paul talks about marriage, one of the things that jumps out at you is this, is that marriage is patterned after the relationship that Christ has with the church. That a Christian marriage, in its best sense, is to look like the relationship between Christ and the church. Well, what does Christ do? He sacrifices himself for the good of his bride, the church. Right? And she, likewise, because she follows Christ, gives up her life for him. That's what Jesus means when he says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. The idea is is that when you follow Jesus, you put yourself to death in order to follow the king. And if you apply that to marriage, what happens is, is that when you get married, you give up a certain degree of control over your life. And you say to your spouse, I love you, and I willingly lay my life down in sacrifice to you in every area. There are choices you can no longer make on your own. And and that applies, Paul says, in your bedroom as well. In the most intimate areas of your life. You are not simply there to have your own needs met, but to meet the needs of the other person. That's why you're there. Uh, Just as the church follows Christ and lays her life down, recognizing it as no longer her own, but belongs to Jesus, the same sort of gospel principle applies here. That you're to care for your spouse in a sacrificially loving way, just as he or she sacrificially loves you. It's a sacrificial act. Now, it's also a lot of fun. Amen? But, but, there's, but even in those times when you're going, you know, things aren't going real well between us right now, and I just I don't feel that way toward you right now. It's even then something that you ought to pursue together. And by the way, let me just say this before I move on. This is along the lines of watch your elbows, okay? And this is the only time, by the way, that I will tell you, or one of the very few times anyway, that I will ever tell you to ignore what the Scripture says in a particular place. What you need to do, though, as you read this, is ignore the parts that are not written to you. In other words, wherever it says, wife... If you're a husband, do not read that and go, hey, wife, (laughs) you're not living up to your end. Or if you're a wife in the opposite situation, read the parts that say husband and go, hey, dude, you're not living up to your end. The idea is, is that you sacrifice for your spouse and you leave up to the Holy Spirit for the Holy Spirit to motivate them to obey. Because, again, I, I'll just tell you this. Counseled a lot of married people. 
a lot of even miserable married people. And one of the things that is common to all of them is they have a set of expectations, maybe even biblically based expectations, of one another that they, in their judgment the other person is not meeting. Well, if you would just meet your end, then I would do mine. And it becomes a battle between who's going to do what first. And here's the deal. Somebody has to start. So go home, turn on the light in your bathroom, and look in the mirror and find that person. That person needs to be you. Somebody has to start. Somebody has to be the one to sacrifice for the good of their other person. And you need to be, the, be sure that you are the person who is carrying out your conjugal responsibility. That if your wife is, wants to be close to you, you make yourself available. And wives, if your husband wants to be close to you, make yourself available. probably stepping on a lot of toes here, but here's the deal, okay? You have a responsibility to love your husband, wives, in a sexual way. Wives, or husbands, you have a responsibility to love your wife in a sexual way. That's part of the deal. Why? Last part of this passage clears it up for us. It's because married sex is essential. Verse 5. Take a look. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, let me just tell you something about this. I, I really like tomatoes on my sandwiches. I like them a lot. Uh, I grow tomatoes in my garden, and there's nothing better than that late summer big beefsteak tomato, and you can go make some fresh chicken salad and put that big slab of tomato down there, and it juice runs down your chin, and oh, it's great, right? And, and a burger with a big slab of tomato is wonderful, right? Some of you are... are Looking at me and going, yeah, can't wait till the weather warms up. Now, however, a lot of the year, I can't get those kind of tomatoes. And so I do without. I have a sandwich without the tomato. Now, some of you think that a marriage without sex is like a sandwich without a tomato. Not that great, but still workable. But let me just tell you that according to the Scriptures, that a marriage without sex is like a sandwich without bread. It's not a sandwich. It's something, but it's not a sandwich. It's essential. It's an essential ingredient. You might have, without the sexual component to your marriage, you might have a good financial partnership. You might have a parenting cooperative. You might have a roommate arrangement with your best friend. But it isn't a marriage in a pretty important way. 
because it lacks one of the necessary components. And this verse starts out, verse 5, starts out, do not deprive. And I want us all to consider carefully what that means. Uh, Let me first of all tell you what it does not mean. What it does not mean is do not say no. It does not mean that. It does not mean that if your spouse is feeling frisky and you are feeling like you need to vomit, that you cannot say, you know, sweetheart, another, another time would really be better. It does not mean that. It does not mean that there should be no consideration given to your spouse's needs at the moment. Uh, there may be times and even seasons of life where you need to give consideration to your spouse. You know, illness, just had a baby, heavily pregnant, whatever. Really busy at work. There may be times and seasons when this is not workable for you. does not mean you do not ever say no. It also does not mean that you have to say yes to every kind of request. Now, I'll not elaborate on that further. If you need clarification, see me, and I'll talk about it privately with you. But what it does mean is this, is that you ought to have regular lovemaking with your spouse. Because the words in Greek here can be translated this way also, stop stealing from one another. Stop defrauding one another. The idea is is that if you are not engaged in regular lovemaking, according to verse 5, you are sinning against your spouse. It's theft. It's defrauding. It's, It's stealing something from them that they ought to be able to anticipate. I know this is hard for some of us. Now, some of you are going, okay, so define regular. Now, here's what I'm going to chicken. Here's where I'm going to chicken out. All right, I'm not going to do that because the Scripture doesn't do that. And the amount that satisfies do not deprive is left undefined. Because it's something you have to work out together as husband and wife. And I think God is very wise in this, by the way. Because I think a lot of us, if we were given a number, a lot of us would use it as a club one way or the other against our spouse. And we would say, well, we are meeting the requirement and therefore leave me alone. Or, we're not meeting the requirement and you're a disobedient sinner. Uh, here's the thing. I I don't know what do not deprive looks like at your house. What I do know is, is that it's often enough to make your spouse feel loved and blessed that they are married to you. Let me give you some other things, too. Uh, Do not deprive means sex cannot be a weapon in your hand. It's a legitimate need, and more than that, it's a holy desire within the context of marriage. It can't become transactional. You know what I mean by that? I'll do this if 
you do the following. Well, if you would help out more around the house, then I would be more interested. Well, if you would do that, then I would be more interested in helping out around the house. You understand what I'm saying? Once it becomes something that is transactional or traded back and forth, it becomes less than God intended. That's destructive. You've picked up the sword instead of the glue. Amen? Do not deprive also means compromise is not a goal. If one of you wants to make love every day and one of you wants to make love once a month, two weeks, you know, once every two weeks is not really a good solution. What works as a compromise works itself out when you both agree this is a priority in our home. This is something we're going to make time for. This is something because I love you, I want to be with you. Compromise is not the goal. But compromise can work if both of you agree, first of all, that this is a priority. Something we need to do together. Do not deprive also related to that means aiming for the maximum, not the minimum. The goal is not, how can I keep my spouse from bugging me? It is, how can I bless my spouse and agree with God that this is important? Do not deprive means also that the goal is intimacy, not just physical release. Now, are there appropriate times for that? Maybe. But that can't be the only reason that you and your spouse get together. Well, she needs me again. Or... Well, he needs me again, so I guess I'll lay back and think of the empire or whatever. You know, that's not, that's really not the goal. That's not the goal. The goal is intimacy. The goal is one flesh, emotional, spiritual, physical connection. And most of us are not Shakespeare. And we don't have the ability necessarily to pour out everything that we feel. But God has given us a way to connect with one another at the level of soul and body. And it's this one. And it's a good thing. Uh, and before we move on here, I'm, I'm going to wrap this up here pretty quick because we need to take communion. But I just want to highlight one issue and one big danger that may come up. Some of you might be thinking, well, this doesn't really apply to me anymore. My husband or my wife isn't really interested anymore. We've progressed beyond all that. We've matured. We're not silly newlyweds anymore. Things are calmer. We don't fight about this anymore. And that might be true, but it probably isn't. What may have happened is that your spouse has asked and begged and prayed and cajoled and prayed some more and finally given up. 
and they are pained by the personal rejection that they feel, and so they simply don't have the energy anymore to set themselves up for more rejection. And you need to be real careful. Just because your spouse has stopped asking does not mean he or she has stopped wanting. It may mean that you have wounded them very deeply and that they have therefore given up. And if that's the case, you need to seek their forgiveness and repent. Because you've picked up the sword instead of the glue. Now, one last thing. Paul looks here at, he gives a reason for why you might not want to make love for a while. And that is a mutual agreement for a short time so that you can be devoted to prayer. It may be, I don't know what this is like in your house, but it may be that you have wounded each other in some various ways very deeply, in which case you may not be able to do this. And you need to seek the Lord in prayer together. Or you may have some problem or some major transition coming up in your life that you need to pray through together as a couple. And you may say, you know what? We really want to take the time that we would be devoting to this and devote it to prayer and seeking the Lord together instead. But it needs to not be a long while because otherwise, Paul says, Satan will tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Don't set your spouse up for failure, in other words. So, everybody's favorite part. How do we apply this text? Well, it ought to be obvious, I hope. Uh, If you are married, rejoice in the husband or in the wife that God gave you. Enjoy your marriage bed together. Experience the blessing of being one flesh that God intended when he created marriage and created sex as part of it. Let it be the glue. Amen? Something that binds and covers and unites and gives joy to your lives. And by the way, if this is not exactly how it looks, it's your house. Don't just resolve that I'm going to learn to fly by pulling really hard on my bootstraps. God cares about this area of your life. This is why he has written about it here and in lots of other places. God cares about this area of your life and he intends for it to be a blessing, not a curse at your house. And so... You need to seek him out about it. If this is a struggle, then go to the Lord together. Go to the Lord separately. Talk to one another. Figure it out together so that you can rejoice and be a blessing to each other. And don't let it be a sword that slices and wounds and stabs. Amen? And if it has become one, commit today change remember your first love remember what you were like when you first got married and how just being in the presence of your beloved sent like an electric shock through your body you're just like <sighs> you're just mooning at one another wherever you are at a restaurant I had to sit across the table so you could just 
stare at each other, right? Walk hand in hand, you know, skipping through the daffodils, right? Um, If it has been a while since it has felt like that with your spouse and you need to reignite the passion that you had before, if you have a problem, get help. There's good help available. Christian help. There are good resources out there. There's good books like uh, Kevin Lehman has a book uh, called Sheet Music, which is great. It's good stuff. Uh, Doug Rosenau, uh, Dr. Doug Rosenau, uh, has a book called A Celebration of Sex. It's a good book. Guy's a Dallas Seminary graduate. He's a theologian, but he's also an MD, and he and he gives some very practical help. If you need practical help, that's a good place to get it. I have both of these books in my office. If you, anybody wants to borrow them, uh, there are websites out there. Now, there's also websites that are not helpful, but there are some Christian websites that are helpful. If you're a woman, you might find encouragement in a website like. Uh, to Love, Honor, and Vacuum. It's a great book, okay, and a good website, too. Um, there's a website out there for you called The Generous Wife. You might find encouragement in a lot of areas of your life, not just this one, but this one, too. Uh, for men, there's her, uh, the lady who writes uh, The Generous Wife. Her husband, Paul Byerly, writes a, a website called uh, The Generous Husband. And it's about all aspects of being a husband, but this is one. And he writes about that on a regular basis. I can point you to some others. I'm not an expert in these things. Been married 17 years. Love my wife. She loves me. But we're not experts at this, but we can encourage you and counsel you and help you to a degree on some of this. All right? Um, if you're too embarrassed to ask for help, Get a good friend that you trust to not reveal your name, to come and ask, and we'll get you help. I have a friend, and she, or he, really would like some help on this. Uh, Can you give him or her some help? Yes. Uh, But here's the deal. This is too important. This is not some little side area of your marriage that is okay to let die. This is important. God saw fit to write about it multiple times in the scriptures. Two whole chapters in Proverbs are devoted to this. An entire book called Song of Solomon, eight chapters long, is written about this. Paul writes about it here. There's lots of places in the scripture that talk about it. And the idea is that God intends for this to be a blessing in our home. For something that soothes a lot of the pain and suffering of life as you are standing shoulder to shoulder going through life together you're also turned face to face at times and are united together and you want your marriage you know nobody gets married thinking you know i just really like to have a marriage that's kind of you know average or you know thereabouts more or less kind of you know, about what everybody else is experiencing, like to be less miserable than most. No. When you get married, you stand before God and your friends and the minister and you say, we're going to have the best, most wonderful, 
most passionate, most God-honoring, blessed thing that we can imagine. And I want to say to you with all the love of Christ that God actually desires that for you. And this is one of the things that has to be worked on and maintained and pursued in the context of that. Okay? All right. We got through. Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a good God who creates and blesses us with good things. That you have created sex not simply as some fun activity uh, to be engaged in sinfully, but as, a, as something which is unifying and blessing and actually holy as we are together with our husband or with our wife. Father, I pray that the couples in our church would be wise enough, would be godly enough, would be holy enough to obey what the Scripture has to say and would be a blessing to one another that they would see the benefit of being together as husband and wife and would pursue that as something which is not only given for their blessing, but which becomes a blessing as they draw together as as a couple. And Father, we pray that that where there are broken hearts and wounded people, that you would, by your Holy Spirit, bind up the brokenhearted and bring healing. That you would bring husbands and wives together to help them to have the marriages that you intended and designed when you created it in a garden with the first woman and the first man. Father, I know this is not the only aspect of marriage that matters, but it's one that does matter and can either be a sword that cuts and divides or glue that binds together. Father, I pray that all of us would choose to have it be glue. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.